0: Oh, we were talking earlier, Brandon. That uh, it's often the case that you—this is sort of like a uh, like a Merlin Man complaint. But uh, you you try to do something nice, and next thing you know, you've been assigned homework to do other things. And and it is uh, you know over over the over the decades of one's life, it does it does start to teach you uh, that you should not try. (laughs) 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 <laughs> 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 that you know contrary to what gold's gym might say when when you show up that means you actually have to do work and uh often more work than than you are assigned to do so it it, it it is a uh it's it's a it's a hazard to to try to help out and and you know this is always part of my my one of my goofy little presentations uh you know w- w- yet another one of these books that i'd like to make one day Called uh, you know surviving and thriving in a big company, and one of the topics I always go over is beware of assigning yourself homework, right? And uh, we kind of joke about this obliquely every now and then. Like there's usually you know you're a, you're a young go getter, and uh, you're you're in some meeting, and uh, they're talking about like you know you have you have some suggestions about how to run a meeting, and maybe you want to do lean startup, and next thing you know, you're suggesting that you should start doing six page memos and, and things like that, and then. You know, I think I think if you're if you're a middling or normal manager or whoever's responsible for that, you just kind of like you know smile and shut that person down because like we don't need uh, improvement. We just we just need to execute on what we're doing. Like if we could actually just do what we said we were going to do, we wouldn't have to worry about improving how we do things. How about we just try to do the fucking work? How about that? Manager out. Um, but if, if if you're if you're a wicked manager, you're like. Yeah, someone should really do that. How about in addition to everything you should have been doing in the first place, you do that too? And you just kind of assign the homework back. So you got to be aware of that. Make sure not to get yourself
1: assigned too much homework. Right, but I think maybe the key lesson here is that no matter who you are, you're eventually going to kind of have this feeling that you should do something. Like you'll have an mm-hmm. idea that you want to pursue. Yeah. So the recommendation I would give to people is – And I, you know, sometimes I follow it, sometimes I don't, but don't, like, suggest it in a meeting, any type of public meeting, or like, even with your boss, like, if you really think it's a good idea, just start doing it. So let's take the memo, take the memo thing. Like, if you believe a six-page memo format will be better in helping communicate with your team, just write the memo and send it out, right, or whatever, however, distribute it however you need to. And then just start doing it because that will actually be the measurement for yourself. Like if you actually think it's a good idea and you did it and then you produce it, that will one, validate that you really believed in it. And two, people will immediately react to it. They'll either say, this is good, this is bad. Um, You know, we want more, we want less. So don't even even wait. If you have the good idea, the only measurement is like, are you willing to do it? Don't ask anyone. Because then if you don't want to do it, Then you can just, it's not homework anymore, Mm -hmm. right? You just like, oh, that was a good idea. I'm not going to worry about it now.
0: Yeah. Now, that's, that's also been a, uh, uh, maybe I follow this about 70% of the time, but a guide for my ongoing content creation life is I very rarely tell people all the things I'm intending to do because then it's just embarrassing when I don't do most of them. And, you know, this would be a good, we'll get to our, our, uh, our topic in a little bit, but, uh, You've worked, I feel like, in more large organizations in a higher variety of roles. So maybe you have some input on this. But I feel like my experience, my, my limited experience in working in large organizations at various companies is that uh, a corporate structure, and I would have to assume it's like this in, in, uh, in nonprofit-oriented things, just large organizations, bureaucracies, uh, they, they don't really reward... Um, they don't proactively reward good behavior and good ideas. They only every now and then reward actually getting shit done. And which is to say, I've, I've, I've noticed there's, there's, you can probably imagine there's one person in particular that I'm always imagining when, I, when I talk about this kind of stuff, uh, very, very energetic, excited, well, well coiffed person that, that we both know. Um, and uh, you know, there's there's always the 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 thing among people to, I, I I think I think the reason they want to tell people suggest that we should have a six page memo is they want to be like recognized for helping, uh, do things effectively and come up with new ideas and kind of be given the resources and the budget and have their schedule carved out because that's what you often hear from these uh, these go getters is they say like. I suggested all these great ideas and no one gave me the time or budget to do it. And I have to do these other things. So it's almost like you're trying to, uh, you're trying to pitch the idea of improving. But I think in reality, like it, it's not like the Hudsucker proxy or the rest of Hollywood stuff where like, you know, the janitor just kind of wanders into the boardroom and suggests a good idea. And then some cigar chomping, Paul Newman's like, I like the cut of your jib. You're the new vice president. And uh, instead, like, it's only like if you kind of rack up a series of successes and prove that you can get something done, and no one really cares how you got it done. They just care that it got done, that, uh, that you get rewarded. And then, and then you know, as, as IBM people would always joke about this when I would talk about them, they would get a new job, and I would say, oh, congratulations. And they would say, well, you know, you never really stop doing your old job at IBM. They just give you new things to do. And so it's, it's, when you're given more authority, it's not like your managers uh, craft time to make sure that you're not overworked, which I think is something in the software development world we've been battling against constantly is just like, you know, you can't, uh, you can't poop 20,000 lines of code into a 5,000 line of code sack, despite what you might try. But I think over 50 years of software development have proven that that sack is incredibly elastic. You can put a lot of stuff in there.
1: Wow, this analogy is has has gone uh, all over the place. I like it as always, yeah, well, I think you know maybe the net of all that is just you know if there's any observation I would have someone else said this, but listen, working in corporate America, like if you believe it's going to be a fair meritocracy where great ideas thrive, you know only the best people and that meaning how you define them are promoted, and mm-hmm. bad you know the people you think are uh not so good. Move on, and you know it's it's not like that, right? I mean, corporate America said it's like it's an unfair, political, crazy, you know, group, and it's just you know it's just kind of nuts. So the best thing is just to accept that, right? And just you know, lots of things are going to happen. So come back to kind of coming back to like the original statement of like, if you think there's something that you want to do that you think is a good idea, just start doing it, right? You know, follow that through, measure those results, and. You know, and just be happy with that. Sometimes you'll be recognized for that. Sometimes you'll be fired for that. You know, it just, you're just not going to know. So don't spend that much time worrying about it, right? Do what you think is important and, you know, and just keep going. That's for sure.
0: Well, you know, related on that topic, if you're interested in more, maybe one day we should, we should uh, on this podcast, talk about this. I don't really know how we'd wrap, that up, wrap this broad topic up. But there's, a, there's a, my favorite book on this topic. And, you know, I forget how I came across this. But when I was, uh, when I was at Dell... Uh, going through the culture shock of working in a non-technical group. you know, As I like to joke when I'm on the road with a bunch of MBAs, I read this book from, I don't know, the early 80s or late 70s called Moral Mazes, subtitled The World of Corporate Managers. And now I see it's in the 20th anniversary edition. And while it's ancient uh, by our nerd standards and goes over a lot of uh, consumer packaged goods companies and others like I feel like it's as fresh as ever for I should go reread it but it has it's it's sort of like the book the uh, the antithesis of all like self business self help books where it's basically uh explains why people do devious things and kind of maybe don't act uh in uh, morally good ways like like I mean essentially I'm putting this in a very bad way but it has a it makes a really good case for like well it turns out that people do what they're paid for so if they're getting paid to do this one thing, even though the company may be saying do this other thing and they don't change their bonuses, then like they're they're going to do what they get paid for. And then there's also things like, you know, always make your manager look good, right? Like don't stab your manager in the back and, all, you know, all sorts of things like that that are uh, – it's, it's sort of uh, – I don't know. It's relaxing to read because it just confirms that uh, you're not the one going crazy. It's just a crazy system uh, that's out there. So I'll put that in the show notes. Moral mazes. Like it. Read that. Like read it. That Moral book. mazes. I'm in. So this uh, you came up with the topic for uh, for for this episode. Why don't you Why don't you give us an intro to it?
1: Yeah, I thought this week we'd talk a little bit about Ben Evans, who is a partner at Andries and Horowitz, also known as A16Z, um, but you know, really everybody at Andreessen and Horowitz is a partner. So they have all this kind of their own weird system. But what he was previously was he was a analyst, but in this case, not necessarily an industry analyst, but a sell side financial analyst is where he started his career covering, uh, mobile. So I think he did a lot of stuff based in London, covering kind of the, the growth of the mobile industry over there. And then he went off and became, uh, a, I guess work for an actual mobile phone company for a while but then what we're going to talk about is he made the leap from that job to becoming you know a partner at entries and horrors as I said before but really he I think of him as sort of like an in-house buy side financial analyst from the venture capital world and you know he does as part of that work you know the things that he does public facing is he does uh, really an annual presentation kind of on various trends and he does a weekly newsletter and then he writes a lot of blogs and you'll find him showing up, popping up on the A16 podcast um, anytime there's some kind of mobile news, Apple events, Google Android event or something like that. So uh, a lot of interesting things. I thought we could maybe talk about like his evolution and then kind of his strategy to content creation.
0: So, so what's, your, what's your, your history in consuming his stuff? Let's 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 ease into this from the the audience perspective, and then maybe go into the uh, the reverse engineered mechanics of what go- are going on, and maybe and then and then maybe we'll look at this uh, this presentation that, that
1: he did. Yeah, for me, I just you know discovered him or ran across him. I think originally on an A sixteen Z podcast. You know, uh, they usually do like some roundups, especially around some of the Apple announcements so he has a pretty you know usually when it happens he'll, you know they'll kind of do a set of hot takes but i have always found that he has like an interesting take on you know kind of a longer term more strategic thought around like hey where, why did apple do x or you know what's happening in mobile what do these mobile apps mean so i heard him interviewed a couple times or be part of different discussions um and so that you know kind of led me uh, as I like to do is if, if someone's really good or interesting like you know you if you discover them then I kind of give them the Twitter follow right? It's like okay, you know, I'll put you in there and, and see what you're all about and then from that, you know Obviously reading his tweets and things like that, but then uh, from that he actually promotes a newsletter And so I signed up for his newsletter and you know, I think it comes out I'm pretty sure it's weekly. I want to say sometimes maybe it doesn't come out every single week, but it's I like it the newsletter format I've always really liked it's kind of like a best of format, meaning, you know, it kind of picks somewhere between like five and maybe fifteen things he's seen or is interested in. So it'll kinda of give you a link and maybe a one to three sentence summary around why he thought it was interesting. So it's kind of a thing that, you know, you kind of stick in your inbox and read as you you know, have time and you're interested. Um, so like, you know, like everything, you know, I, you know, I feel like over the last year I've rediscovered some newsletters, you know, curated newsletters that I think are really good. You know, I've kind of resubscribed having gone through a period where I think I unsubscribed to like everything I humanly could. Um, and then from that, you know, he does post a lot of stuff, uh, especially his presentation and his videos, he posts them online as he does them. So I guess that's how I've come to know and consume, uh, his content.
0: Yeah, yeah. And then he also has a blog like he had a uh, a post on uh I don't know, Amazon's a factory for making new Amazon businesses, which everyone seemed to really like. Uh and yeah, yeah, you know newsletters are like an interesting uh I don't I don't know. I mean, I I guess I guess at this point uh as the old trope goes, we should just accept that email is the way things are done. Uh and and that if you're going to oh. disseminate uh your 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 curated thing you're going to send out an email just end the story right like it's the it's the the avalanche of what what everyone does which uh i i it's i it's be interesting to know like i guess we'll never know but how's that how that is fueled like to one way maybe i wonder if like the advertising rates in email newsletters are better than like what you would get in i don't know facebook led content because my understanding is you know no one reads blogs anymore essentially uh, and so your 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 um your pipes of attention uh, to get people to read something are basically like email and Facebook and like a very small amount of podcasts where people will read about that and then and then maybe sort of like people clicking on stuff from Twitter to go to a blog which is kind of like Facebook but like this kind of stuff classically like like email newsletters wouldn't I mean, they didn't really exist as anything but laughable trash for a long time. <laughs> and now all of a sudden it's just like that's the primary way that people who would have been blogging in the past uh, send things out. And I think I think my loose understanding of this dude is that he's one of the people who started sending an email newsletter out back when people didn't think it was a big deal – and then uh, I think other people started paying attention. They're like, oh, this is actually a thing. And they started their own email newsletters. And now, now you know, since there basically uh, is no end of opportunity to talk about how fucked up American politics is, everyone's got a newsletter. Even, <laughs> even Matt Iglesias is like, I got to have a newsletter. Like he changed his uh, his Twitter name I saw recently to subscribe to my newsletter. So it's sort of like... Here you have Vox, right? One of the places that seems to have still figured out blogging. And they're like, fuck it. Got to have a newsletter. And so it is uh, – I don't know. It's always a curious thing because I find, I find reading newsletters very cumbersome. But I guess, like, there's really no, no other way to control the inflow of information that you have since no one reads RSS feeds anymore, right? right. And, and since well, – since your Twitter feed is like auto is algorithmically like messed with and since your Facebook feed is too. And so it's like you want this dependable thing just like a newspaper would be uh,
1: that comes in, which which seems kind of alluring, I guess. Well, I think what you, you're hitting on is like kind of this switch happened, but I think it happened in a kind of a, like a quiet way or we didn't really think about it that there was at this point you know, blogs, but then for those kind of in the know, everyone had their favorite RSS reader, right? The era of like Google Reader, blog lines, you know, there's a bunch of them. And I think for kind of the Twitter crowd, most of us, you know, all used an RSS reader. And that was kind of nice because if you were posting a blog, you had some sense of like how many people were reading, you know, kind of some sense of subscribers, right? But I think what came along to what you're saying was Twitter really is the thing that replaced RSS, right? Just like I kind of said before, there was a time I would have read a Ben Evans thing or discovered him and I would have subscribed to his blog, but like I don't do that, right? I just add him to my Twitter feed and that's the same. So then if you're a content producer, if you're writing something and, and you want someone to kind of like have a com- like a, a larger commitment, what was once the RSS, you know, s- subscription becomes the email newsletter and that gives you know, kind of your super fans, you have a way to communicate them with directly. And it gives you a sense of like exactly how many people are actually reading you. And then if you're trying to make money, or you're just trying to measure your influence, you know, actually having their email addresses is actually much more interesting than just knowing your RSS uh, subscribers. So that's kind of how I see how it all evolved. Eligio Cote, and
0: and and usually, uh, you know, usually, I I guess at least you you pretty much trust that you have a direct connection to a person, like a one to one thing with email, and and you can also like, uh, because no one cares about invisible tracking images anymore, like they used to in my day, Uh, but you know. You can see if people open it and links they click on, so you have a lot better analytics than you would in r s. s right so you've you've got that more intimate relationship with person, and you know of course like i I do this thing where I have like a catch all uh domain name, and I just like'll put the name of the thing I'm subscribing to in front of it, so it's not really like a direct mapping to uh to me, but anyways uh it is like I guess I guess you feel more like you're reaching someone. It's more of a guaranteed uh, delivery of of getting this one, which is much more valuable not only for uh, for advertisers but for actual people, right? Like my understanding of of the the Ben guy here, Ben Evans, right? Is that I say his last name Evans? No, nope, that's right. Uh, Benedict is I think I think he largely got his VC job based on his newsletter, right? Which is to say the attention that I guess he got from uh, Andreessen Horowitz was because they probably found his newsletter uh, uh, useful and they would read it and they started thinking like, Oh, I should just talk to this person. I want to do that. And then the next thing you know, he's, I think he's like listed as a partner at the firm, which I don't know what that means. Uh, But that sounds fancy. He's not just an associate or a research director. Um, So it is is like you do have that more direct connection to, uh, to talk with people. And, I don't, you know, like like we're fiddling around with doing a newsletter, and I found myself writing a little uh, a little introductory like thing at the beginning of it, and to some extent, like because I look at the metrics, right? I know no one reads blogs anymore, so I don't, I don't really care about that. So it is sort of like, well, where else are you going to go to actually reach someone uh, other than a podcast? But so there, the the news, and you know, that like just to to rehash what you're saying, like the format of his newsletter is very uh, spare, right? Very minimalist, which I think. It's 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 interesting cuz like having messed around with newsletters over the years, right? Like it's a very conscious choice to have a minimalistic newsletter because even doing minimalistic newslettering requires a lot of work. Like if you've ever tried to use like Mailchimp to put a newsletter together, it's not actually oriented around the idea of a weekly link roundup. It's much more commercial. It's it's very confusing to try to use it if you're trying to do this kind of newsletter. Because it had, it's based around campaigns like buy this gift for uh, for Christmas, right, and and things like that. So <laughs> right. so basically, every time you make a newsletter thing, you have to go make a new campaign using the same list, and so you copy the previous one and uh, go and add that. So it's actually a lot of work. It's very annoying. Now there's there's other services like. Um, they bought this company. It's some very simplistic way of doing an email newsletter that I can't think of now, uh, which, which is nice, but it, it has like, for some reason, they're like, we're going to give you this really simple way of making a newsletter and not really give you any analytics on it, right? They're kind of like solving the wrong problem. And then there's another one called Get Review, R-E-V-U-E which does kind of a good job of solving the problem. But their issue is like, and if you it's shut down now, but if you ever got the architect.io email newsletter, that's done with Git review. And it has this very like, I don't know, 2013 cheesy design to it that you can't really do much with. And then also it's actually very cumbersome to pull together. Like it's, it's uh, I don't know. It's, it's, it's very difficult to pull that together, but I think for the tech world and the way that people would consume this stuff, the kind of minimalist approach is is pretty nice. He's got emoticons in there. But he doesn't do, for example, like what the new stack does in their newsletter where um, it's basically like a self-promotional thing. But they'll stick images in there and like links to their SoundCloud podcast thing and all sorts of stuff like that. But his is definitely oriented around like you want to scan this and have like a little miniature tech meme in, in your box. And I think it's successful at that. Uh, essentially,
1: agree, agree. The
0: return of the newsletter. I, I really left it wide open for additional commentary there. <laughs> <laughs> but, but uh, you know, so so then then as as my standard gripe here, right? Like it is uh, it is uh, it is annoying that it's just sort of like, and this will get into his presentation. It's like yet another incredibly incisive, brilliant tech analysis of the same goddamn shit right like it's just <laughs> like i think he even has his own his own phrase for uh the four or fang or whatever what's he call it Gafa. the gag yeah G- gaga i think it's g-a-g-a yeah.
1: or g-a-f-a yeah nope. yeah yeah
0: you know google amazon facebook apple like yay what netflix didn't race rate like but uh it it is just like <laughs> You know, I listened to, as I recommended recently on a software-defined talk, I listened to all of the uh, the Vanity Fair diaries, uh, sort of like Tina fit, not Tina Faze, Tina Brown's, the other Tina, uh, Tina Brown's uh, diaries of when she was reviving Vanity Fair in the 80s. And it's, it's really interesting to listen to because you get, uh, well, among other things relevant to here, you get a sense of how it sounds ridiculous when you go over it but as content producers these are the things that you often overlook but you get a sense of how important it is to actually sell a lot of copies of the magazine <laughs> right like like the business <laughs> the business side of content production turns out to be incredibly important right and and the way you sell the magazines and and I think I think what her I don't know it, it wasn't so much unique but I think the experiment to take a startup thing that her her publisher, and then she also had was, as she says several times, "What if we take a highbrow, lowbrow approach, right? Like we will have an article that was done for like six months about the disappearances in South America of people, and then at the same time we'll talk to you about how like uh, this this celebrity's divorce is going poorly or something like that, right?" And so we can have, like, sophisticated journalism in here and then, like, a magazine cover that, like, you know, is awesome and salacious and everything. And sure enough, and, you know, lots of coverage of Donald Trump and other 80s, like, uh, sociopath gross people. Um, and, <laughs> and, like, and consequently, we're going to sell a shit ton of magazines, right? And, and so to that end, uh, you know, I can give a certain pass of, like, well, I guess people like reading this shit. Right. Like they want to they want to understand what a what a Bitcoin is and how Apple's doing. And like, here's like the 50th analysis of why Amazon is a unique company and how they're a factory for building other Amazons and and things like that. And, you know, again, it's fine, but it gets to be really annoying after a while, at least for me, that there's not, um, I don't know, newer topics or something
1: like so. I I do think in this one, though, I was going to say. Here, I think you're right. I think there's kind of the the weekly Ben Evans newsletter, where, and I think a lot of times, like when he gets on the A16Z podcast, he's sort of just giving you a hot take on, you know, Fang, right, or, or as he calls it, the what, it, the GFAF. I don't God, I don't know how you say that, but like, you know, his whole point is just. I think that is just like a hot take on news, but like the reason I guess I follow him, so like what earned, you know, in yeah. my mind, like what, what earned the follow was that he does, like I like his forward thinking stuff where he's clearly taken more time. Like this presentation and some of his posts where he does use like this this presentation, you know, he, he kind of launches and says, okay, you know, there's always this assumption and he just kind of does the typical history thing. You know, first there was IBM and then and it's dominance and then there was Microsoft and it's dominance. And then, you know, and now he's talking about uh, the Google, Apple, Facebook and Amazon dominance and just kind of says, well, you know, we always make the same assumption like these these companies are dominant, but something will happen. We just don't know what. And then, and that's what I like about this presentation is he's using that as a jumping off point to try to get away from, you know, the current technology and even kind of saying that ultimately these companies will likely be, uh, undone and when I say that, I just mean they won't grow and be as, you know, super successful. They'll probably be around for a whole long time. But but kind of say like the, the next set of entrants will probably follow these trends. And here's some things to think about. Uh, and then, you know, as I always like, as I always say about, you know, whether it's Ben Evans or Ben Thompson, like I just like things that then bring my thinking into a, like a new place Whereas I was like, I don't always agree with what they're saying, but I like the fact they open doors for me to start thinking about in this case, like, for example, a autonomous vehicles he's got like a whole take on what does that look like right and then how does technology affect that um and he has his own predictions but then you know of course in your mind right you start creating your own opinions around that mm. yeah yeah and
0: and you know the d- despite my rant right it's not like we ever talk about anything new right so, <laughs> so, so we're, we're basically focused on the same stuff over and over again because that's that's the niche that we're in and uh i think what what even even complaining about it. the reason that I read people like this and 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 the others over and over again is because or, you know because of what you just said right they may they they use the the buzzy stuff the popular things to talk about standard business stuff and every now and then like uh, societal things right so whatever what you know it's just analysis of current news but. The analysis that they're doing is, to some extent, educational and, and, if you're like me, entertaining to read, like, uh, you know, like, like the notions in his, the presentation, right? So his presentation is called something like, uh, what is it, the next 10 years or 10 years or something like that. Um, and, uh, you know, 10 years futures, 10 years futures, hmm, which is an odd phrasing. Uh, but, uh, or did I just type that wrong? Uh, No,
1: you're right. Ten years futures.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. But so so as you were saying, what's interesting about it is, is he goes, you know, there's a few abstract points he makes that are timeless. Right. And chief among them being, um, at least for me, the point of when you're thinking about how an innovation is going to change an industry you have to be careful of thinking about how it's just an incremental improvement that like changes that you pretty much everything's the same, except something is more performant. Right. And he uses the old tried and true analogy of like the first horseless carriage was just a carriage that didn't have horses. And he shows a picture of like, you know, a Mercedes one of it actually just looks like a Sherlock fancy Sherlock Holmes horse carriage and it's got an engine on it. And so there's sort of like this failure of imagination of actually, it's not going to look anything like that. And you'll also have like, you know, trucks and motorcycles and, you know, all these other things. And so, you know, he he shows he um, puts up an image of like a uh, a driverless car might look like the 300 square foot Ikea demo apartment. Like instead, <laughs> just driving around uh you know like the the Amazon treasure truck just driving around town which is which is fair, right, and then he makes the broader point you know of like if you've got a driverless uh all your driverless things that changes the way your infrastructure has to be, and on and on and on right, and so that is again like a general principle you can apply to basically anything in in life is that if you if you make a dramatic change to a system uh you, 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 there's a high chance that the rest of the system is going to change in ways that you had no way of anticipating and you shouldn't just worry about uh, optimizing little parts. And, you know, again, the other analysts, I think, who do well here, uh, they they have similar uh, sort of um, tactical insights that, that they kind of like accidentally leave by the wayside, right? So the tactical thing being like that way of thinking in systems, innovation in a system, you can apply over and over again if you're conscious of it. And, um, you know, and then and then I don't know, I, I think at certain points, uh, I, I guess the other thing I would point out is that it's also important to understand to distinguish in this kind of material. Uh, I mean, literally, he's a VC, I guess, um, or partner, I assume that means he does VC stuff. So as a VC, your job is to find uh, an idea early on so you can buy in cheap. And at some point before you pass it on to the next sucker or you, you IPO it, which I guess could be a lot of suckers in aggregate, you basically have an exit of some sort. So you're trying to find new ideas that uh, will make will net a lot of money in valuation because they get broadly used or, or industry changing, right? And so consequently, um, Ben Evans is not going to be interested in how uh, the U.S. State Department is modernizing its software portfolio. Right. Like like <laughs> that, the existent stuff that that has huge improvements in productivity, but doesn't create a net new market that you can buy into and profit from are not anything he's ever going to be interested in nor cover. Right. And so which is totally fine. Right. Uh, but it does sort of chop out um uh talking about tactics a lot more which is i think ultimately like what i get annoyed with with any coverage like this of just tech world stuff is like you know it's fine to talk about like uh the ha- the the what of something right like what something will look like like uh we should be doing agile software development that looks like this like you know we're doing pair programming and we're deploying every day and we've uh, we've we've automated our builds and and go read the sre book and there's the what of what sre is and even the why is 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 passably interesting. Like why do you do things this way? Uh but what I'm always starving for is the actual tactics of how you get to do that. And and this kind of this kind of coverage like rarely goes over that kind of thing. I mean every now and then in looking at how uh how like companies are succeeding in, in the the Fang or the gaffer or whatever, they'll kind of go over why these companies uh succeed at what they do. But it's still it's it's still you don't come across enough like, you know, well, sure, Amazon can be a factory of factories, but I still don't understand why it was the case that they could just burn piles of cash for 15 years. I mean, this is a trope we go over all the time or like, uh, so how is it that Apple actually succeeded in doing this? (laughs) Right. Like I get that they had great design. And then what? right like how how did they pan this out and and as as one interesting uh thing uh, that'll be interesting to monitor ongoing right as an example so with all these companies going private does that work <laughs> right like like how if if you compared like HP or HPE versus uh you know Dell Technologies versus all this other stuff like what is a good strategy and tactics for a late term company, because that would be a, a, a great conclusion to kind of like, it would be, I think, on the order of the value of disruption theory in the tech industry to say that, like, basically, once you become a 15 plus year old tech company, uh, and you have, let's say, 20 to 80 billion in annual revenue, and your growth rates have reached this, or you're doing 40% maintenance and 60% new license, you probably need to go private, right? Like just some like tactical conclusion like that would be a wonderful thing to like have floating around out there. And all that said, the content's still good. It's just like, uh, I I wish all this type of content would just sort of like look at the tech industry as a whole instead of just like the, uh, the consumer companies.
1: Right. Well, I think what you're doing there, and I think it's very insightful, is just unpacking, you know, kind of back to almost how we opened this podcast a little bit, talking about incentives and how people are motivated. So as we're looking and we're watching the Ben Evans presentation, we, we can definitely think about his motivations, which you hit on, right? One, he's a VC. So he's obviously going to be very bullish on technology, right? He's not, at least the presentation he gives outwardly, he's generally not going to highlight trends or things that he's either not interested in or maybe don't serve a VC's purpose. So like, I think in his presentation, this one specifically, you know, injuries and Horowitz is, you know, I think somewhat famously now, very bullish on Bitcoin. And he even kind of says Bitcoin is kind of closer to like, it's the technology has been proven. They're just finding, you know, the, the kind of the use case. And I, I definitely think, you know, that's a view that isn't necessarily widely, or at least it's very controversial. I think there are a lot of bears on, uh, you know, Bitcoin as well. But, you know, you wouldn't expect him to come out and be like, yeah, the digital currency, it's just not going to do anything. Right. We've we've looked at it like because, you know, a bear case could just simply be that, you know, electronic payments have been around for like 20 plus years in different formats. People don't want them, right? that. We just haven't come to a point that it's important to people. And we think this is just going to fade. Right. So he wouldn't, you know, he's just not incentive where somebody, you know, with a different point of view may come out and, and say that right away. And then you know, the other thing I think is interesting is he is sort of painting, you know, a different future. And he spends a lot of time talking about machine learning. And, you know, he kind of makes this analogy to, like, relational databases about the idea that, you know, it's not like Oracle who popularized a relational database. It's not like they kept all the data and we just used their relational databases. And, you know, he kind of goes on and then says, well, SAP bought Oracle. And what happens is relational databases found themselves in all these different uh technologies and all these different products. So it's sort of like an underlying technology and kind of makes Mm -hmm. that same case around machine learning and kind of says that, well, you know, we're all thinking about machine learning wrong and it'll just become like a relational database and all these different products that we build. But the thing that he really misses or the thing I would have liked to hear him talk about is, you know, in the past, and this goes with the cars too, is we've never had these such strong network effect companies happening, right? So like in 1980, It wasn't like all the data, like all the people were just using one system or or a lot of people, like 5 billion people are using one system. It was, there was thousands of companies, all of them had like data stored in like spreadsheets or something like that. And they all needed a better way to search that data. So that was, I think, pretty clear problem. I don't think that was uh, something that, that was necessarily all that surprising. Like people had it and wanted to buy something for it. But then now you go forward and you say... Well, it's a lot different now because we do have these huge companies that aggregate like more data than, you know, we've ever seen before. And the fact that they then use machine learning, right, it may be a technology that is more interest, or almost more interesting to those very large companies. So instead of like an advertiser, like, you know, applying machine learning to their own data, an advertiser or anyone that wants to advertise is just going to be beholden to like one of the large internet sites Mm -hmm. google and facebook right to figure out how to target like they don't even have the data anymore much less the expertise to figure out what machine learning so that's a whole world that i think he doesn't really touch on right that's the whole thing about it's not that machine learning knowledge won't be disparate um widely disseminated it's the fact that like the people that can get the most of it are highly concentrated but again i don't think that's a narrative that promotes his or a 16s view, right? Yeah. They want everybody to embrace it. So, you know, both those, you know, examples, um, I'm kind of just hitting on there, right. Are just kind of saying, and I think what you're doing is like when you're watching these presentations, it's not that he's, a, you know, I think he's like has any evil intent. It's just his, his motivations are going to be very much driven about how he's incentive. And a VC thinks different than somebody selling enterprise software versus somebody that's maybe just running uh, the state department in some format. Exactly.
0: Yeah. And, and, and just to, to, uh, to do a little, a couple of mi- micro uh, things there, right? Like, and to highlight some things you said. So the, uh, the, the admirable and fun thing of, of his technique and other people like Ben Thompson does this Any any good a- analyst uh, succeeds in like, Uh, doing the Malcolm Gladwell thing without being annoying, which is to say it's I I wouldn't call it as I described before as an unmasking because it's it's not a cynical version of this. But it's like, here's this thing that we understand in one way, but actually it's more useful to think about and treat it in this other way. And so as an example, I mean, the two examples that you just pointed out that I thought were great in, in his presentation are. Uh, you know, everyone talks about AI, but really, they don't mean artificial intelligence, they mean machine learning. And let me tell you what machine learning is, machine learning is not AI, right? And then so therefore, if we have an actual understanding of what this AI stuff is, which is that it's not AI at all, it's machine learning, what can we do with machine learning? What capabilities does it have? And what are some quick examples of things we might uh, think about with it? And he actually does succeed in like the, uh, the ranty hole of machine learning and AI that I get upset about, you know, goes all the way back to, uh, I forget the dude's name. He's got, it's like hammer Schmidt or hammer John something. Anyways, the, one of the, the big brains at Cloudera, he had that funny, uh, uh, appropriation of the Ginsburg thing of like, you know, the greatest minds of my generation are figuring out how to sell diapers or, or whatever. Right. Meaning that all of this ML stuff, like so much of it is, as you were even highlighting is basically just advertising and targeting. Right. Which is fine, that creates a lot of value and money and increases the value of my 401k and brokerage account. That's no problem, but it's not like you know it's just making advertising better now what he does that's nice is he brings in uh like let like if we could do like um video and photo recognition and then you could start doing things like if you monitored every uh um person building an iPhone. And you could start to analyze that. You could, I don't know if he ac- actually says this, but you could figure out how to increase productivity, right? By studying how they do things and going all tailoring, taylor- tay- uh on them. <laughs> and, and, you know, he does other things like, you know, you could, you could, um, you could monitor traffic. Like there is, there are things that you could start to do with machine learning beyond just like, you know, the canonical case of telling the father that his, his teenage daughter is pregnant. Uh, because you did too much machine learning so that 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 part is is really interesting i think it's nice that he kind of pulls that out there to say and it's a good example of the general point he's making is don't get obsessed with the first impression you have of some new technology right it's not just going to be a horseless carriage like it's all sorts of other things and then you know he does the same thing i think with uh with cryptocurrencies, he's like, everyone, and, and this is, at least in our world, this is the a well-understood trope, but I bet people who would listen to him and the broader audience, not really uh, a concluded notion at the moment, which is like, Bitcoin is meaningless. Don't worry about that. What really matters is this blockchain thing. And what the blockchain does for you, and this is as far as me, Cote understands, is it basically, if you trust the parties involved in this, it verifies that a thing happened and these parties said the thing happened, essentially. And so you ultimately, any trust-based system relies on some initial prime mover of trust that you have, but you essentially have a way to very quickly, as they would say, distributed, uh, verify that things happened in a highly automated way. And so how would you use that, right? Like what would you do, you know, use that technology for? regardless of what the rise and fall of Bitcoin stuff is. And so, you know, I think those those are good examples of um, expansively thinking about uh, how these technologies uh, could be applied. And and again, it's another good tactic you can bring out is to really understand what the technology is and how it changes doing things like in our space to retroactively apply it. Right. And, And to be fair, since I was involved in this, a lot of people were doing this in real time, as it were, is. Uh, I don't know, like EC2 came out in 2007 or so. And in the preceding five years, all of the people who sold on-premise IT were like, hold on, I see what's happening here, <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> like, like, if if they're basically like, even though they're not saying they're selling servers and they're only selling to developers, like developers drive, custom written software drives a huge amount of on-premise stuff. And so like, not only do we have SaaS to contend with but like why are people going to buy on premise stuff and so they start to project out like the side effects of 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 technologies and and you know what they're going to do and the opportunities and then you know using that example again like the tactic that they all missed was uh it's really expensive and it's hard to build this stuff like they all just assumed it was uh easy and you could shift over to doing it but so yeah i mean those are those are nice uh nice parts of the presentation that he does, and you know it's 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 what you want to peek out from looking at his newsletter every now and then is like a not even just an interesting new take on something but a deeper understanding of how this technology is going could be applied to uh existing things that's a really screwed a uh, useless way of putting it <laughs> but um you know, and and then and then also just to empty my macro book, right? Like he uh, he also provides some good example of like uh, overly cutesy thinking, right? Like when he's discussing he he gets he gets on a good historic jag about Oracle's a database, and you had to have the Oracle database to have SAP, and SAP drove a lot of ERP thinking, which allowed how did he put it, which allowed people to offshore their manufacturing, which is like. 20 or 30% accurate, (laughs) right? Like there's a lot of other stuff that enabled that. But yes, having... Having having an ERP system makes it easier to do that and, and more profitable to to do that kind of thing. And then all of a sudden, I think he literally says Starbucks is a is a database company, and you're just like, what what the fuck happened here? Yeah, you're like,
1: where am I? Yeah. Well, I think yeah. you're I think you're hitting on a lot of stuff. I mean, I think if there's the weakest point in the presentation, I I do think is kind of that Oracle analogies, and then trying to make that leap, like especially with his Bitcoin prediction, because I think. In the case of autonomous vehicles, I think it's a pretty well understood problem. Like we all, like all everybody doesn't want to sit in traffic. If you are forced to sit in traffic, it'd be great if you didn't have to drive. If you could just be on your iPhone. Uh, So they're like well known problems that we're trying to solve. And I think the same thing with machine learning is everybody has too many pictures. Everybody has a lot of you know things that would be great if like we could uh, some machine learning thing could listen to this podcast and index all the podcasts and you know tell us like we know these problems really well and i think oracle kind of fell into that same case like there was a lot of understood need around like we wish we had some way to query data which was relational databases yeah. but then you know you know i think you really and i think it's okay to like put technology in that like sometimes you can see a technology coming in and you really know where the problem is and then you know sometimes he's picking some stuff like you know again let's we'll pick on the bitcoin thing it's like well this is there isn't, you know, like we're not sure yet. Like it's not clear to anyone yeah. what the problem is. Act- like we all understand it solves distributed trust. That is great. Everybody gets that now. Nobody is 100% sure which problem we need to deploy, you know, deploy distributed yeah, trust. Yeah, still. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. And so, and, and, I mean, that's a place yeah. where you'd like to see. I'd like to see him like tease that apart and give us more there.
0: Yeah. And 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 to apologize to it a little bit. It is only like a 25 minute thing. But nevertheless, uh, and, and to triple down on it, right? Like he totally nails the whole database thing, right? Like, and I've seen him use this slide before. He's got one of the better, awesome slides that, you know, he's got that slide of all these office workers in the 50. And he's basically like, that building was an Excel spreadsheet. And this is one cell in the spreadsheet, which is just like hilariously accurate, right? And then, and then you know, it's like, you have a database you could query in seconds, like every point in a zip code. So that, that all makes sense. and And yeah, it does get to the point where, what you would like to see in the blockchain discussion is like, here are some early things people are doing that you would apply it to, but whatever. And then maybe, maybe to start to close out, right. Like another example of, uh, of things being a little like, I don't know. I have a jaundice eye for this kind of thing is like, it's like, Oh, let's trot out Microsoft and piss all over them again. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, and, and the issue with this is there's a couple of things. One, like, And maybe you remember from the halo effect and all your behavioral stuff to name for it. But it's sort of like, it's almost, I don't know what to call it, but it's sort of like the tarnished halo of like, actually it turned out, what's interesting about Microsoft is not that they were said to be dead for a long time and failing, but they managed to actually turn it around and they've managed to not be dead. And now you know, we'll have to wait till this proves out, but now I think pretty much everyone would say Microsoft is pretty awesome and firing on all cylinders and all that stuff nowadays, right? And so it's easy to use the decline, the 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 mix changing between PCs and smartphones as sort of proof of I don't know what, whatever it is you want, right? But the more difficult thing that I very rarely, if ever, seen is like, so then what can we learn from Microsoft turning it around, right? Like what what do we learn from there? And what do we, what do we learn from the fact that Microsoft and to some extent, IBM, we'll see how it pans out and and HP, but like that these companies have been around forever and which ones are turning it around and which ones aren't. And, um, I don't know, you know, again, to be an apologist or an explainer for it. Like if you look at, uh, I think I went and looked up some charts in the show notes, but if you look at, you know, the overall return on investment that say like Apple would give you over the past 10 years versus Microsoft, I think it's something like, uh, like 880% return on apple investment versus 189 return on investment for microsoft so from that viewpoint microsoft's a dog as as we would say right like if you're grading on a curve but from a pure business standpoint it turns out microsoft is perfectly fine probably awesome business compared to like mining or being sears Right. (laughs) Right. And so so it is it is continually annoying that someone like a Microsoft gets pissed on just because, uh, you know, because Apple is the most phenomenal enterprise that humanity has ever seen. (laughs) Right. Like it's, uh, it's 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 like it's like comparing my ability to cook a steak versus like that Franklin guy or whatever. Like it doesn't mean that I'm shitty. It, you know, anyhow. I'm I'm getting going down a rant hole too much, but that would be it. Would be a more encouraging. Um, and and Ben Thompson does this a fair amount, right? Like when because he actually worked in Microsoft and did stuff. It's like I think what's more useful is to learn what happened at Microsoft, how did they recover from it, and therefore also predictively, like how are these other companies going to screw up, right? Like eventually, just as it did many times in its past, like Apple is going to screw up and things are going to be weird, right? And the same thing will happen to Google and. You can also use that lens, that kind of understanding, as as Ben Thompson often does, to figure out what the fuck's wrong with Twitter, right? Like, why are they <laughs> screwing up? So um, it is a little unfair that we know this stuff uh, in depth, and it's what we pay attention to, and we're kind of, like, attacking the things that we know. Now, on the other hand, when you're consuming this kind of stuff, it is instructive uh, to focus on what you really know and see if the... The method of analysis has correctly nailed the things you know about well because then it allows you to uh, more closely inspect the things you don't know about and start to, like, question if the method of analysis works there or not. So it is like um, it's, uh, you know, to make make a call (laughs) – there was something posted yesterday from some other VC about how uh, it's hard to be an innovative person in San Francisco because it turns out if you don't like gay people, San Francisco doesn't want you. Uh, And so it's sort of like you're kind of like ruining your whole argument there by pointing out this, you know, this turd in the punch bowl that you've pooped it in yourself. Right. And so similarly, in a much less societal problematic way, like he's like Starbucks is a database company. You're like, no, it's a fucking coffee company. Like there's nothing, nothing about a database is involved in this at all (laughs) In, in a meaningful way. It's it's sort of like saying like. Um, you know, Roman aqueducts were great, and then we had indoor plumbing, and everyone has has a toilet. And if you think about it, Target is actually a raw sewage company.
1: <laughs> I like that. It, that, it's just to go. That that's good. That we need to build some slides. For yeah, that. like you uh, can't, that's gonna. It's good imagery. You can't you can't attribute
0: a, an organization's success to com- highly commoditized infrastructure, no matter how highly advanced it is you know, given a hundred year view or whatever. Like, it's
1: just, well, I think you're, you're really touching on, like, I think, I think the answer to like many of those questions that you're thinking about is, you know, is the emotional nature of human beings, right? Like there isn't going to be like, we all want to like think human beings are robots. Like we'll learn from Microsoft and we'll apply it in the future. And it's like, no, because like we live in this very dynamic group of people that are highly emotional. We act irrationally and like every situation is a little different, and that's what's always going to be the case. So, so in the case of Amazon, we'll just use that as one example. Like if we all believe something is true, then it's going to be true. Like if we all believe Amazon's the best and the stock's never going to go down and um, that's always right, how right. it's going to be, then, then Amazon will be given this, this privilege of having an infinitely growing stock, just like we all believe money is worth something, the actual piece of dollar bills. And it works because we can all get stuff. People don't believe that about other companies, whether it be Dell or Microsoft or IBM or whoever else, right? So they're held to a different thing. But if tomorrow, for some reason, if tomorrow everyone believed Dell, right? Dell is the company that cannot fail. Then Dell would have this incredible valuation and be able to do lots of things, and something would happen from it. So, but again, like this gets into just very like weird human behavior that no one really understands. So it's like it's hard to write about.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, and and that I mean, and then and then I should close this out. But like I mean, that gets to another, or we should go to our closing comments. Uh, But uh, that gets to another thing that would be tactically interesting to look at. Right? Is um, making the managerial business case for controlling the image of your company is incredibly important, right? And and um, let's pick on HP instead of your current mortgage payer, uh, which is, uh, for whatever reason, and, you know, it, it, people, investors, and, and also buyers and people who would go work for you, everyone, uh, lost faith that HP could be good as a business, <laughs> I, guess, I guess the assumption was that the reason you would be associated with HP, invest in it, work for it, buy stuff from it, is because the technology you would buy from them uh, was affordable given the benefits that it gave you, right? Like, and, and whether you want to call that they were innovative or whatever, but you could rely on them to always give you IT that would help you out. And, and you also could rely on them and like a lot of enterprise buying. And you see this a lot in EBCs, like it's always eye rolling when people are like, we want to know about the future of your company and how this thing affects that. And what they're trying to check on is like, is your company healthy? And can we rely better our career on you, or at least this phase of our career for the next five or 10 years, right? Like you're not going to become a corrupt, horrible company or not, not corrupt, but you're not going to become a rotten, a rotted out company because of neglect, And so for whatever reason, uh, people failed to believe that HP was like that. And so their valuation went down, their, you know, their revenue went down. There's, I'm sure there was a brain drain. They had to break the company up. And, and even now, I don't know if people, I think it's kind of like neutraled out. Like people are waiting and seeing what's going to happen. But, you know, there somehow there, there should, and maybe this probably exists in some academic literature that I could never like find or get through, but like, there probably is a pretty solid case to be made of like here are fifty companies we looked at in the tech world, and five of them it turned out spent a lot of money on image or or whatever this thing is, and the other ones didn't and then sure enough, these other ones fucked up <laughs> or or whatever right like it's hard to find causation in a study like that, but you know the idea of in the tech world it being an accepted notion that the how people favorably think about you drives a tremendous amount of your success isn't really a common idea that I think managers or or now anal- analyzers of, of the tech world talk about like we all kind of know it's there but we're like embarrassed to talk about it <laughs> right like and and it, it's it's like a dark dark art of doing things but it would be more interesting to uh expose it a lot more or something I don't know Sort of like people people for a while were complaining that like Google was boring, and uh, nothing was going to work out there, and maybe spending all that money on robots and other shit like helped out with that maybe it was that was actually like uh, turns out it was helpful for revitalizing the image that they were a good company or not
1: absolutely who knows brand marketing it's brand marketing, the dark art that does matter, but no one understands i yeah. like
0: it so so overall i mean i I, I don't think i I think I did resubscribe to his newsletter. We'll see how long I can tolerate it, uh, as as far as the 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 Gaffin or Gaffneys or Gaffa or whatever. But I think I think the presentation he put together was was great. It's a very admirable, very tight presentation. As he noted, he also had a cold while he was giving it. So congratulations uh, on giving a presentation while you're sick. And you know, it's structured well, and there's a lot of good takeaways from it. And uh, Starbucks, not a raw sewage company, as as we've established. But uh, I think I think there's a lot good that you can take out from it as a uh, consumer of uh, of tech sort of junk and figure out how to uh, tactically apply it to other situations and then and then always be searching for that stuff I'm always complaining about. Will someone think about the enterprise software, please?
1: <laughs> <laughs> tech. That's right. So you got any closing thoughts, Brandon? No, I just maybe just always want to come back to, like I do, I actually enjoy Ben, uh, I don't want say Ben Thompson, but Ben Evans, so I I like his newsletter, I guess it's earned my subscription, and uh, I think he does provide things to think about, so if you're looking for that, watch the presentation, and maybe give him a follow on Twitter. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Well, as always, this has been the uh, Software Defined Talk Members Only uh, White Paper Exegesis Podcast. I never know if I've got the uh, words in order there, but you must already be a uh, a patreon member hopefully as so many of you have done you've you've upgraded to uh, paying $5 a month instead of just one some people go to $2 or $3 which is great good job but you know uh I, we all like money so that's nice uh if 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 you want to share this with other people feel free to uh, help promote them to help us grow it and uh we also have uh, – we've got a bunch of T-shirts that we'll be selling sometime soon. And as mentioned, there's a uh, – if you go to softwaredefinedtalk.com, you can subscribe to our own newsletter, which sometime today I'll send out the, uh, the little second edition of kind of. And, and perhaps you could record your own comment about how we keep focusing on the same goddamn things and uh, it's getting to be obnoxious, which is totally uh, fair, uh, a fair criticism um and uh oh also uh we we recently had a listener survey and we only had uh men fill it out so if if you're a woman listener i'll put a we'll put a link to the survey brandon will reopen it and we'd like to know what uh you know i i I know we have at least one woman listener uh but if they if if you haven't filled out the survey and 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 your your gender is not male it'd be great to uh, get you in there as well and uh uh, I was figuring we'll also uh we'll we'll send you a special uh t-shirt for that. Just maybe in your comment tell us what uh what color and size you want. And if you give us your address, we'll send one out cuz you know, we can't have a solid color uh pie chart. We got to have varied color that's more representative of the actual listener base. So with that, we'll see everyone next time. Bye-bye.